This is Peter Holmstrom, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new book, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, the official companion book to the hit documentary series by the Nacelle Company, which chronicles the history of Star Trek from the early days of Lucille Ball and Desilu all the way to through the end of Enterprise, featuring new and expanded interviews from Trek legends such as David Gerald, Rick Berman, Ronald D. Moore, Harold Livingston, Walter Koenig, Kate Mulgrew, Nana Visitor, Robert Picardo, Tim Russ, Brandon Braga, Lisa Klink, and of course, in Glorious Trexpert's own, Mark A. Altman, as well as the final interviews from Kirstie Alley and Leonard Nimoy, in addition to so, so many more. Pick up The Center Seat, 55 Years of Trek, available today in hardcover and digital wherever books are sold. At the edge of the universe. Starfleet intercepted a distress call. Command thinks could be related to the recent attacks. At the brink of destruction. <laughs> the attacks have all been non-Federation ships, but now someone's targeting Starfleet. They're sending the Cerritos? I guess we're finally getting some respect. Uh, oh, oh, man, I have to start with holodeck waste removal. Blech. Your odor will be repulsive. These are the voyages of the crew of the Starship Cerritos. We're all such a good team. We finish each other. Dial Fantine Equations. <laughs> Don't get too used to this kind of work. Promotions are coming up, and I think you'll be very happy. Wait, really? As long as nothing goes sideways today. All part of the ambiance. On September 7th. Mapsy. Holy f They will have one chance. Ah. We'll be friends no matter what our ranks are. That's an order. Yes, ma'am. To prove huh. that they can be more. We've worked together for years. I trust you. <laughs> then simply. Lower decks. Lower decks. Slow down. Slow down. This is nothing compared to, you know, that Pike thing we aren't supposed to talk about. A new season of Star Trek Lower Decks. Oh man, am I in the game? Move along home. Alamarine, count to mm. four. Welcome to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. I'm your host, Peter Holmstrom. I'm a screenwriter and author here in Los Angeles. You can pick up my new oral history of Star Trek book right now on sale on Amazon currently for your holiday season. The Center Seats, 55 Years of Trek. Pick it up now. And I'm Lisa Klink. I wrote for Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I do not currently have a book out for the holidays. <laughs> Uh, you have so many books, though. You, people should I pick do have up other books, so yes. many of Lisa's books. She's done some amazing <laughs> work. Um, all right. Uh, writing for comedy, uh, first and foremost, takes an expert knowledge of writing for drama. And when it comes to writing comedy for Star Trek, that takes an expert knowledge of not just drama, but also of the Star Trek franchise. 
We recently witnessed what I would say will go down in history as one of the best two-part finales of any Star Trek season in the season four finale of Star Trek Lower Decks, not just for its humorous comedy chops, but also for its very compelling drama and great Star Trek storytelling. On today's show, we'll be discussing that finale, and we're thrilled to have on the show today a writer who has worked in animation and video games. Uh, His numerous credits include Justice League Action, Young Justice, the Guardians of the Galaxy animated series. And in terms of the Star Trek franchise, he was on the writing staff that developed uh, Star Trek Resurgence. And most importantly of all, though, he's my very good friend, Mr. John Callen. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Pete? It's good to be here. Very thrilled to have you on, buddy. Uh, you know, before we uh, get into the episode, love to for you to talk about like your own history, how you got into the business, and how you how you first discovered Star Trek. Yeah, so um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer uh, from a really young age. Um, actually, before Star Trek, I was a Babylon Five fan. Babylon Five led me to like seventy science fiction, like Harlan Ellison. Uh, which led me back to Star Trek, uh, The Twilight Zone, so many uh, different shows in the 90s that you and I are both fans of, Pete. Um, All the different Star Treks, X-Files, Buffy. uh, And I just knew this was what I wanted to do for a living. I uh, wrote a play in high school that got produced at a a theater in Princeton. Um, And I was off to college where I actually found it harder to get anything produced than uh, it actually was in Hollywood. (laughs) Um, But while I was there for four years, I met uh, a former animation writer and storyboard artist who'd worked on He-Man and G.I. Joe. And, you know, he was literally the first guy I'd ever met that had even sort of been to Hollywood, had touched things that went on TV. So we used to take him out to lunch uh, weekly uh, and just pick his brain. Uh, And then I moved out here to Hollywood um, and he wrote me three recommendation letters. One was to Joe Dante. One was to Joe Dante's production company, uh, and one was to a guy named Greg Johnson, who at the time was running Wolverine and the X-Men. So I moved out to L.A. uh, saying I was a writer on season two of the Wolverine and the X-Men. Now, that show never happened, um, but as a result, I met a lot of other animation writers, uh, and I ended up doing animation writing as a huge part of my career. Uh, I've written television animation for about 15 years now including uh, all those credits that you mentioned. Um, And uh, around six years ago, maybe seven, I shifted into video games as well, um, kind of carving out a niche for myself in what we call a choice-based narrative. Uh, So now I write and teach choice-based narrative in games and narrative design, um, as well as, you know, continuing to write for uh, animation and TV. That's wonderful. And I also I, I forgot to mention, because um, I know there's a, a large and devoted fan base to this, but you also worked on on Ben 10, right? For for a number oh, of yeah, um, two different Ben 10 shows. Yeah. I was on um, Ben 10 Omniverse and the uh, Ben 10 reboot for Cartoon Network that was just called Ben 10. That's great. I, I haven't gotten into it yet, but I do know it's it's a very popular show. So I should, I should have mentioned that as well. You but know, we so. hit a surprising number of Star Trek references in those episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. What, what's your favorite of that? Like, do you have one that pops to mind where you're just like, yeah, I got away with that reference? So you know, it's it wasn't it, it's nothing insanely clever. It's mostly the aesthetic because we ended up, you know, so much of our show ended up being space based and science fictional. But like when you needed a thing, you know, instead of just calling it like 
the place where Vilgax lives, right? It would become the Vilgaxian neutral zone. Uh, you know, uh, uh, space stations were always, you know, deep space, uh, you know, followed by a number. Amazing. That's uh, that's how you do it right there. I'm still absurdly proud of the fact that I snuck a Zardos reference into Lisa and I's episode of Pandora. And uh, <laughs> for those who know it, it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> The uh, the only time my father was ever proud of me was the uh, the Blues Brothers reference I snuck <laughs> into a, a Ben Ten episode actually amazing very cool uh, was it just jumping over a large bridge with a uh, two people in a straight face it was it was the Carrie Fisher character oh, so sure. the, yeah the gag was that it was a it was an angry ex wife from space coming back to beat up one of our characters. And and you did literally the Jim Belushi speech where, you know, he's he's like, my car broke down. I was out of gas. You know, you got to believe me. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> it's fantastic. So I understand you worked on Star Trek Resurgence. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, kind of the culmination of a, a dream come true. Um, you know, uh, I got the chance to move from animation over to video games. Uh, and when the studio I was working at shifted in an arcade direction, I ended up working in choice-based narrative, which is, you know, what the sort of generic term for telltale games is called. Um, and I, I immediately found that I was absolutely in love with it. It was all this moral decision-making and weighing value systems against each other, weighing friendship and relationships against those value systems. Um, so, you know, long before I ever got the chance to work on Star Trek Resurgence, it was always on my mind that Star Trek would be the perfect format for this kind of game. Um, and so, you know, I got to to come in there. Um, and, you know, like, I would say the surprising thing is, like, uh, writing for Star Trek is just like writing for anything else. Hmm. It's like there's the fan part of your brain and then there's the writer part of your brain. And very quickly, the writer part of your brain just has to tell the fan to calm down so that you can accomplish the job. Did you run into trouble with uh, like techno babble and Star Trek vocabulary? No, that was that feels deeply ingrained in my bones. Like I, you know, uh, um, like I think, you know, Aaron Sorkin talks about the fact that he's not like actually smart. He just writes the sound of smart people talking. <laughs> um, and that's the way I feel about Star Trek, right, is uh, there's this beautiful, sophorific, rhythmic quality, like so many people I know fall asleep to TNG, because, you know, writing those words, they, they just have a musicality to them that always feels natural to me, because I've seen so much of the show. Did like what it what was that early uh development process like so i feel like star trek and video games has it's always been come very close to becoming like a thing and yet it's never quite managed to like jump start in the way that i think star trek resurgence has kind of succeeded in doing but like you know those early days of development like what was the kind of tenor in the room what was kind of the the anticipation for the game on the part of the the companies on the part of the, the staff that was even there it's just like you know what was as opposed to something like I'm, I'm probably being too vague here, but like something like, a, you know, Star Wars or the new Halo or whatever. There's so much anticipation for it. So much like oh, money just being thrown at it left and right. It's like, what was the, the early development like for this game, especially compared to some of the other projects that you've worked on? Well, uh, first of all, all credit to um, our head writer, Dan Martin, uh, who was a friend of mine who brought me on. Um, you know, everything sort of uh, came from his initial idea. 
you know, you're kind of looking for a really big concept to wrap everything around that feels meaningful enough to warrant a game. Uh, he rewatched all of TNG, uh, came back with, uh, you know, this this fairly small part of an episode called The Last Outpost, which is the first appearance of the Ferengi. Uh, and that, you know, uh, kind of ends with this ancient space empire, the Takan Empire, coming back. Uh, you get a brief glimpse of them and you're kind of told uh, that that these guys disappeared, but they were they were the most fearsome, right? You know, one assumes maybe even more fearsome than than the Iconians and and later races that we get a bit more of a glimpse of. Um, and so he had the idea, okay, what if these guys come back for real? And it's big and it's scary and it challenges our characters' value systems. And I think that's really the answer to your question in terms of like how a Star Trek video game differs from a Star Wars video game, and it's the beauty of what we got to do in the genre. You know, I know some people are fans of that like action shooter Voyager game that came out, you know, back in the day. Oh, but, uh, Star Trek Borg, right? The- uh, I can't remember. I know that it creates this, its own continuity with like Star Trek Marines and stuff, mm. um, you know, and not, not to rag on that. Right. But I think you're, we're always trying to fit a square peg in a round hole with Star Trek to try to make it an action game Uh, and star Wars that fits incredibly well is why there's been millions of star Wars games. But one of the things that I think made us an extremely successful star Trek game is that, you know, the, the, the genre of our game is about choices is about decision-making and debating. And so, you know, it's when you love those briefing room scenes where it's Mm -hmm. like, I need options people. Like that's Mm -hmm. what our game was about. Very cool. And that's, uh, you know, an element of video games that I think is really thriving right now, too, which is, is wonderful. Um, all right, listeners out there, we're just going to hop right on into this episode. Uh, we're going to be discussing season four, episode nine of Star Trek Lower Decks, The Inner Fights. We're going to queue it up here in three, two, one, engage. So what have you found is the difference between like writing animation and writing a a, sort of a narrative video game? Oh, well, I mean, obviously the biggest difference is uh, thinking about story non-linearly. Right. Um, You know, when you're when you're writing for games, you really do have to sort of reform your brain to think about things three dimensionally because that's not not how real life works. Um, But when you're writing animation, it's all about pushing yourself to think visually, to go further than you would go normally, um, to figure out the sort of gags and visual elements that can really make a thing uh, thrive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Worth noting, this is, uh, I think this is Paul F. Tompkins here in this opening scene, who's just a wonderful comedian and voice actor. Yes. You gotta love seeing these, uh, you know, the return, I get the return of kind of like the lifelong biologist characters or the lifelong scientists who are just sent to an outpost and stay there and right <laughs> outpost scientists a huge yes. part of star trek <laughs> and often getting in a lot of trouble yeah and and i think this cold open is is very funny in that regard because it's sort of exploring like okay well what kind of weirdo does this like for yeah. real right i love it uh the the title of this episode obviously a reference to the tng episode the inner light which yes. a lot of people consider one of the best TNG episodes. Sorry, I'm just I'm just going to annotate just because I'm such a big fan of what they what they do with this show. No, oh, please. It's, great. it's uh, 
you know, this is part of a kind of season long arc for for Mariner here, who's been um, acting out a bit. You know, it's more so than usual, I guess, which is uh, you know putting her life on the line a little too much. So it's uh, we're going to see the culmination of that in this two parter. Yeah, which in a lot of ways is like very much the culmination of her development, you know, throughout the series so far, I think. It's true. I mean, I think we'll talk about it when we get to the to the actual season finale, uh, the next episode. But um, interesting to think about where she'll go next um, as a character. And then so we have the uh, season four opening credit sequence here, which I just I, I, the first time I watched it, season one, episode one, I was like, this is this is great. And the fact that they've kept refreshing it with each new season, has just been a it's a joy. It's a joy to see it. And really, really beautiful. Right. Like they don't. um they don't uh, skimp on the sort of like majesty and like visual poetry of Trek just because they're a comedy. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, it's just very funny. I love seeing the Star Trek four uh, probe here on the left. That's just great. And um, they even get a nice little sound effect right there, too, which is uh, good to see. I'm a little jealous because we never really got to do much comedy on Voyager. Uh, we, we took ourselves very seriously on that show. And to be able to cut loose like this must have been so much fun. It is. I mean, yeah. I, I imagine, though, and John, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. But, um, you know, with Star Trek, especially, I think there might be an impulse to kind of forget the Star Trekiness of it mm -hmm. in the process of comedy. I mean, you could look at any, you know, SNL skit or whatever, and it's like, yeah, you can do comedy all day long at Star Trek's expense. But to actually maintain a level of of this is Star Trek and putting comedy into that is a very hard needle to thread. And I think they do it very well here. But like, John, I mean, your own experience uh, working on some franchises that maybe have a more serious tone, but you want to bring a level uh, a levity to it. Um, you know, how do you how how do you navigate that, especially for animation? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting needle to thread on both sides. Right. Um, on the one hand, uh, you know, it, when you're doing comedy in something like Star Trek, it can be very easy to lose the sort of um, authenticity of the world, which I think it's really important that you not, right? It's this grounded, rooted place, um, or, you know, at least it has rules, you know? Um, on the other hand, comedy has been a part of Star Trek, like from the beginning. And I think sometimes there's this urge to make it something that like the jocks won't be able to make fun of. Um, and I think when you lose that, you lose this really essential element that like Gene Kuhn brought kind of from the beginning of the show. Um, and so like one of the things I would call out here, and I, I think I'm answering your question specifically to this show and not more generally, sure. but like Talin's just the MVP of this season. And I, I think agree. that's because they understand Vulcans are funny. Yeah. Like you really, if you don't have comedy when you write a Vulcan, you're really not successfully writing a Vulcan. Yeah, Talyn appeared in an episode of season three, I believe just one. And then uh, this season has become more of a recurring. And I think next season is slated just to be a regular. Um, and I think it adds just like it's such a great element that had been missing with the show. It's You, you kind of need that, like, I don't want to say straight man, but kind of like the, the deadpan humor, the more like, you know, someone who can comment on the absurdity of the situation or the absurdity of the characters in a very straight laced kind of way. Um, yeah, Vulcan's humor is hilarious. I mean, it's, it's so dry, you know, and, and so like kind of insulting at the same time as being funny somehow, yes. you know, because it's you know, sort of making fun of all these emotional creatures. I, yeah, I, I love writing Vulcans. 
Yeah, I, I think to answer your question generally too, Pete, I think, you know, there's the thing in me that makes me a Star Trek fan that like makes me obsess over all the little details of this world and really think them out and spin them out in my own ways that create new stories in my head. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same thing that makes me a certain kind of comedy writer and not another kind. You know, when you're when you're in the room and you start pitching on jokes, often the like first joke to crack the room up is like the joke you shouldn't use. It's a very meta joke. It's a joke about how you're sitting here trying to come up with a joke. It's a joke that breaks the world. And it's really hard to keep digging and find something that comes from character, that comes from the authenticity of the space, um, and doesn't kind of betray those elements to get a cheap laugh. Uh, and I think that's very much the kind of comedy write I write when I do write comedy. Yeah. And John, you might know this better than me. Is this planet been visited previously? This new accident? I actually I actually looked it up. It is not it's okay. not been anywhere. Um it's kind of funny, right? Because it, it seems very much to be kind of planet Star Wars, right? Yeah. yeah. Like it's got a tattooing kind of thing, like a Mos Eisley. Uh these guys feel very imperial in their design. Yeah. Uh and and our bounty hunter here feels very like Leia in Jabba's palace. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's very, uh, but I do love the twist on it too. Is they're just they're they're, in, you know, impeding the the Federation's investigation by sheer politeness and just over <laughs> over uh, doing the rules and regulations that this planet has. And it's I just I, I think that's very fun. I think part of the trick with comedy and with animation is to keep up the stakes. Sure. Um, you know, it's it's really tempting to kind of make it not as bad or you know not as serious, but I think that really makes it weaker i mean it's it's to have the comedy while they're being shot at you know is just more fun i think i just gotta say too unrelated like the bird of prey here looks great like i'm yeah. just like Beautiful. god damn it we're just we're in star trek here yeah absolutely and and i totally agree with you lisa it's um you know i i mean i come from that school of you know on the more serious side billy wilder on the more fun side you know raiders of the lost ark I think comedy enhances drama. It doesn't take away from it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the hardest part about writing comedy is, you know, the easiest, laziest trick is to make your characters stupid. Yeah. Um, and no one on Star Trek is stupid. So that's it's a really hard one to write for, I imagine. Uh, you know, comedy week in, week out with characters who are ultimately really competent. Yeah. Yeah. And it continues to be hard needle thread, I think, with this show that like these characters are, uh, you know, uh, academy graduates. They're all very smart. They're right, but they're also lower deckers. They're not uh, your your lead officers. So you can't make them so competent that you're like, well, why aren't you guys getting promoted? <laughs> and so it, it's it's a very specific note. I think they've been pretty successful at it so far. Um, but uh, interesting to see where they'll go from here. You know, yeah, I mean, it comes out okay. of personality, um, you know, more than again, like, you know, slip and fall, you know, pratfalls kind of stuff, or, you know, people making stupid decisions, like you said, everybody here is pretty smart, but they're all sort of smart in their own distinctive ways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm just such a huge fan of the show. When Pete uh, asked if there was something I wanted to do for the podcast, you know, I immediately picked this just because, you know, uh, I mean, Mike, if you're out there, uh, you know, I, I think you just do amazing work week in, week out. 
Um, you know, and it's it's always been so clear that that there's true love and authenticity here. Um, you know, when it when it would be so easy to to cheat, you know, they don't yeah. cheat. Yeah, and I mean this little planet uh setup that what we just saw, it's it's my mind went immediately to the Savage Curtain, right? It's just like this this group of uh random uh captains that are stuck on this planet who are um having to survive. It's uh it's very fun. A pickpocket district is I think yeah, a great joke. Uh, I think also worth mentioning uh, our Romulan captain, also voiced by Paul F. Tompkins. Mm. Um, that's uh, a feature of the way SAG rules work in animation. Uh, you hire an actor and you get two voices before you have to pay them a double rate. Uh, two voices and maybe a walla, uh, which is when you have a lot of different characters talking at once. Um, so, you know, on all the shows that I would work for, you would have your budget for the episode and that usually meant a limited number of cast of characters that could be in an episode. And so you would just start writing the actors names on the whiteboard and just having them double up like, okay, who, which recurring character definitely needs to speak in this episode. Okay. That means we've got an extra voice for them. What do we know that they can do? Can they play a villain? Can we make them a background scientist? You know, whatever. I also just love how it. it I, I think anyway, it's a bit of an in joke with this bounty hunter character. It gives off very much a Bush uh, uh, vibe, but like the helmet looks like they just drew it, like some eyes on it with pencil or something. And I, <laughs> I like to think that's exactly what they did. Like it's just, it's uh, they just didn't have a lot of time, so they were just like, yeah, it just it looks fine. We're we're off. We're going. Yeah, it's also got a bit of a. Oh, I was just going to say it's got a bit of a uh, like a modern, um, like a Daft Punk kind of vibe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. I agree with that. I was just going to ask about uh, with animation, it seems like budget wouldn't be as nearly as much of an issue as it would be with live action, but you do need to consider like how many backgrounds you need to draw and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So I think that's one of the most interesting things about animation is, you know, you sometimes have these uh, myths that get repeated about it. You know, the idea that um, that, you know, budget doesn't matter. You can go anywhere. You can do anything. Uh, and that's not really true. What's actually true is you can do different things than live action does. Different things cost more. Different things cost less. It costs the same amount of money for me to send my characters to high school and the moon. Um, in fact, it might actually cost a little bit more to send them to high school because I'm going to have to populate crowds and every design of a, of a character in a crowd has to be drawn, um, which is why you'll notice that for uh, animation that's been around for a while, in the early days, you won't see as many crowd scenes. And then you amortize the cost slowly as you introduce more and more background extras such that uh, you'll you'll see you'll be more easily be able to do a concert without having to stick your main villain in the background and fans are like what what the hell is that yeah <laughs> I think uh, probably Star Wars Rebels is the one that really comes to mind as as a good example of that like the first season you, the planet will have like two or three pedestrians on it or something and then by the end of its run it's it's far more populated um, I just love this little subplot here of just like you know. Enemies trapped on a planet have to work together. It, I'm just a sucker for it. Every time it happens, I'm just like, yeah, let's go. 
And Pete, you're the TNG expert. Uh, teach me how to tap dance, Beverly Crusher. That's yeah. a, I think it's a Data's Day reference. Oh, it's a Is that right? Data's Day reference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also the fact that uh, Gates McFadden is a choreographer. Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, you're right. This setup, just classic Trek. Um, this character I love so much, this sort of oddly spiritual Klingon who um, is willing to fight you to the death, but like it's not personal. If anything, he kind of has a lot of respect and, and affection for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It has to be the right environment too it can't be yeah. well that's how klingons express love you know <laughs> right very true very true um i love that I, yeah i love a planet that rains glass too that's just that's fun this planet has no honor i like that <laughs> yeah i think i think this is the closest this episode gets to to straight drama as you get into sort of what mariner's problem is here and her interaction with this Klingon um it's kind of when I'm the the biggest fan of the show you know I, I'd love them to push the envelope even further into this direction it's like there's lots of jokes in this episode they're great jokes but like this plot in particular feels like it would be at home in any Star Trek show and be fantastic yeah absolutely oh absolutely I mean I, I think they've done a few uh, episodes of you know one of our guys stuck with an alien on a planet because that's that's such that's such good drama yeah. You know, when they're trying to survive together and they kind of forced to, to work together, that is that is absolutely Star Trek. I do love it here, though, how like she actually doesn't want to talk. Like, usually it's the Federation who's like trying to like get the enemy to open up. But she's just like, I'm good. Like, it's, <laughs> it's the Klingon who has to be like, all right, let's like what what's your what's your deal? What's your beef? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I think she's I think she's uh, I mean, Mariner's like very interesting, right? Like she's got this interesting background, you know, she gets along with Ferengis. She gets along with Klingons. In many ways, she she sort of is an anti Starfleet Starfleet kind of person. Um, and this is where we're, we're really starting to get the the sense of that for the first time of like, oh, is there a cause for this a core wound? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, very cool to bring back Cedo uh, Jaxa. Yeah. Uh, who uh, appeared in first in first duty and then later in lower decks, uh, the episode mm -hmm. from which this show takes its name. Yeah. And it's such a good callback to, I mean, this is where the show really thrives for me personally. I think prodigy does as well to a degree, but it's finding these obscure moments in previous episodes and really expanding upon them. Um, you know, first duty is a very well-regarded episode, but it's, it's also like, it's not like referencing like Wolf three, five, nine or something like that. Like it's, uh, it's, uh, and yet lower decks is able to take these, these kernels of, of really great stories, really great characters and, and build them out even further, um, which I like a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've gotten, we've gotten a couple references now, I think to Mariner having fought in the dominion war. Mm -hmm. uh, and and she generally seems to treat it as like a pretty traumatic event. Um, I'd certainly love to see a flashback to that as as we see a flashback to the Academy in this two parter later. Yeah, that'd be a hard one to do in a comedy, but it I I, yeah, I would, would hope that they would push it and try to go there. Um, but yeah, the way she describes it, it's just like she was an infantryman and she just witnessed just utter decimation. Um. Yeah, and they've also, made a lot of references so far to, to Nicola Carno, obviously from the first duty as well. The first duty as well, yeah. And he's going to come into play here soon. 
Yeah. Um, featuring a former guest on our podcast, uh, Robert Duncan McNeil. So yeah, it's. Uh... I think it's great how much the the modern shows have used characters from the from you know what I consider the classic shows. Uh, you know, from 20 years ago, you know, Voyager and Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, you know, you know, seeing Janeway on Prodigy and all that kind of stuff. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, that is one of the things that animation's perfect for, right? Is, you know, while we have seen plenty of times in New Trek when old cast members come back and there's been a lot of fun to be had there, uh, in animation, you can bring them back at any age, at any time. Yep. Uh, you know, you can see a, a cameo by a, a young Will Wheaton, uh, which, you know, you can't you can't do in Picard season three. Mm -hmm. Nice little mud, Harry, uh, Harry, uh, mud, right? Harry mud. Yeah, I guess uh, Harry mud opened a bar, you know, uh, <laughs> as you do. I mean, <laughs> this I love this. It's really yeah. funny right here. <laughs> In uh, reference to the uh, vampire alien from the Corbinite maneuver, yes. uh, the uh, the false face of the uh, the first Federation, who I'd, I'd really love to see back when I when I saw this for the first time, I was I was kind of hoping we would get like baby Clint Howard voiced by like an adult <laughs> Clint Howard. <laughs> but I appreciate how they subvert that there. Uh, yeah, and I and I think it's an interesting implication now, right? Which is that now I guess we have to assume that captain had a puppet that is based on a real alien that exists somewhere in the Star Trek universe, and now we have met that alien. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just laughing away here at this. This is a, uh, it's just great. <laughs> so it's hard to tell who is and isn't a puppet. <laughs> I think it was at this last Star Trek convention. Maybe it was the year before, but somebody came. It was like a great cosplay of this alien here with the uh, like the original view screen version that oh, like, yeah. went, went over like uh, the credits. Like they actually had like a TV screen with the credit of uh, I think Herb, it was Solo, Herb I think. Solo. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, just recreating that that shot from the credit sequence. Was yeah, that was fantastic. Brilliant. See, that's that's really great because I was going to say, you know, while while the Corbinet maneuver is a classic episode, I think the real reason the visual of this alien is so famous is is because he would show up on those end credit title cards so often. Yeah. And then here we see the reintroduction of the Orions. Um, just going to come into play here soon with the character of Tindy. It's a nice way that they're able to like interweave pretty much all the principal cast into the this two-part finale story. Um maybe with the one exception being uh I mean I guess they do it with everyone, but it's just a nice way to, to do that. Um I'm well, Pete, that. you and you and I talk all the time about um you know how Ron Moore took the Klingons and really like built out the the larger uh degree of their culture yeah um you know i think you know he's talked about the fact that he was really influenced by this john m ford novel that came out in between the show and the movies um and i know that every time i approach a star trek race that's always something that i'm looking to do is you know taking what has previously been established about it and and trying to logically extend that 
you know, do what Sturgeon said, you know, asking the next question, how would this race actually function? What would it be like without breaking the sort of fun cartoonish one dimension that we already have about them? Uh, and I think this season of the show and, and you know, the show more largely does an incredible job of that with the Orions agree. where, yeah, the first, you know, mostly they have been a joke in Star Trek, the whole slave girl thing. Enterprise introduces all these interesting subverting details. And this show really takes those runs with the ball and builds, you know, a fully functional culture that you'd love to see more of. Yeah. I just I just want to see the pink Orions we saw in the animated series, though. That's <laughs> <laughs> don't don't you mean the Orions? The Orions, of course. Yes. <laughs> uh, yes I, I have so many different uh, races here in this scene. Yeah. You know, just like, you know, hanging out with some Cardassians and some Ferengi and like you do. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're all like uh, uh, stranded captains, which I suppose is a bit of a question mark. Like you feel like the Klingons would just kill their captains, but uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> it, you let it go. It, it's a nice concept and um, always fun to see the Binars again. They're they're uh, yeah. they're fun culture. The joy I felt every time I saw Binars this season, they're just so funny and adorable. And it's a great joke later of like, can you have three binars? You know? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> it's love how every it's time we see every time we see the helmet, there's just like the winds flare, I guess, across the sun flare or the light flare across the helmet. It's always fun. Yes. Uh, and here, here you have, you know, the sort of payoff of what I was talking about earlier, right? Of like the, the difficulty of avoiding the temptation of making your character stupid. You know, I think they correctly identified that there was this like really fruitful comedic area of showing just how out of place Starfleet officers could be in, you know, a, a Star Wars type bar. Um, but at the same time, you kind of have to ask yourself the question, OK, wouldn't they teach classes about this at the academy? Like, wouldn't a smart captain know not to come in their uniform? And so the way they did it, they get to play the comedy, but then at the end, subvert it uh, and say, you know, no, they're not dumb. Like, they're smart characters. Yeah. This, this is my only nitpick with that episode, that they pull up the hull using, like, stone spears in their hands. <laughs> yeah, and they jump it's like that. Very, very high height as well. <laughs> like, yeah. It looks like a nice hundred foot drop right there. I do love that though. He just like beats the guy to death and then theoretically eats his heart, which uh, I just love that. That's just a very clean on thing to do. Yeah. And, and you're so emotionally with it by this point, the sort of journey of them. Like it's so very Star Trek, you know, the idea of like, by the end of it, they have to learn to work together to solve the problem. Yeah. Right. This is such a good reveal. Yeah, it's nice. It's fun too, given that like, you know, this is a very, I would say, natural progression for the character of Nick Lucarno, uh, since mm -hmm. they didn't end up wanting to do the uh the handoff into voyager it's like well then what would yeah. this guy do he probably would fall into the some sort of a criminal enterprise for a while but then also think like still wanting to be the natural leader still wanting to be the uh the guy in charge so like uh forming this kind of you know socialist revolution let's say it's, it's kind of a natural progression for him which is cool 
but but of course you know not really right all all yes. in service of his own ego of course which is exactly the person he was in first duty yeah but we will discuss that more on the next episode which uh <laughs> We'll be queuing up here shortly. But, uh, John, thanks for joining us here for part one of this conversation. Uh, you're going to come back, join us for part two as well. Um, you know, before we head off, uh, do you have anything you want to plug? Do you have a website or social media handles you want to throw out there? Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm at John Callen. Uh, please play Star Trek Resurgence on uh, PlayStation, Xbox, and PC. Uh, I guarantee you, you will love it. Uh, not to brag, but the writing has been called out in uh, most of the reviews. Again, all credit there to our head writer, Dan Martin. Um, as for me, uh, I'm currently working on a science fiction web series called The Box. Uh, if you follow me on uh, Twitter, at John Callen, or Instagram, at InstaCallen, you'll see updates. Um, and hopefully that should be out by about the middle of next year. It is it is a comedy, but I would say it's a very TNG-like comedy and that it is unafraid to kind of uh, have those, those long conference room scenes where characters just talk and you get a, a really deeper understanding of, of a complicated idea like artificial intelligence. And then we layer the humor on top of that. Very fun, very fun. And uh, listeners out there, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at uh, TrexpertsBR or on Instagram at TrexpertsBriefing Room. We'll be posting uh, upcoming uh, episodes as well as behind the scene uh, looks into uh, the shows we talk about. Um, so for Lisa Clank myself, thank you very much for being here. Hope you'll join us again next time where we'll discuss part two of the Star Trek Lower Decks finale. Until next time, the briefing room is now closed. Mr. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened, as if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement.